welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, I'm out of works at the farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, guys, this is a continuation of the farm's storied Wackle series, but with a twist. We're going to look at the evolution of the Old World Anti-Communist League network from the end of the Cold War up to current day events. And trust me, folks, it's simply incredible how relevant Wackle's legacy is in 2023. When Keith Allen Dennis and John Brisson and Moss Robinson and, uh, of course, Ed Kaufman and I did the rest of the uh, did the original podcast series, we saw it as a largely historical undertaking, but as the show that I did with Keith on Abe's assassination this past summer revealed, the old Wagner Wackle Network is still around, still a player, but with a new generation of leaders and institutions that have carried on the works of the OGs. At the forefront of this revival is another subject as relevant now as ever private military and intelligence companies, PMCs and PICs. One of the contentions we shall make with this series is that modern-day PMCs and PICs have effectively taken up the role, by and large, of the World Anti-Communist League and like bodies. Whereas during the Cold War, Wackel served as a middle ground between Western elites from the conservative and neoliberal orders alike, to arrange things with a, let's just say, motley crew of international drugs and arms traffickers, aging Nazi war criminals, the next generation of black terrorists, religious fanatics and cultists of various stripes and so forth. It was an incredible melting pot, both sides of which are still largely in existence today. But increasingly, PMCs and PICs are where they're doing business and on any number of levels. At the center of it all during the late 90s and into the 21st century was the most enigmatic of PMCs. It was an allegedly Russian-controlled PMC called Far West Limited. But it was so much more than that, as we have seen over the course of this series. Indeed, it may be the driving force behind the present war in Ukraine and how Joe Biden ended up in the White House. And seriously, I truly wish I was exaggerating with this claim. Up to this point, we've explored the circumstances that spawned Far West, the origin stories of the people who were involved, its role in the great ruble scandal, the Moscow apartment bombing complexes, Project Hammer, the shocking smuggling of nuclear and biological weapons, and also the possibilities that it has ties to those curious biolabs that keep popping up around the globe since the conflict with Russia started. 
And in the most recent installment, we began to start looking at Ukraine in depth. I explained the significance of Russia and why it's absolutely crucial for the neoliberal establishment to dismantle the current incarnation of it as the Russian Federation for their long-term aims to be accomplished. It was a bit of a lengthy conversation. We didn't get to really have much from Senate, unfortunately, but this will uh, be rectified in this outing for sure. He did, however, manage to take us through a rather remarkable deep dive into the Orange Revolution, which unfolded during 2004 and brought the U.S. patsy Viktor Yushchenko to power in Ukraine. And that is where we shall pick up now as this state of affairs brought in a wave of OUNB figures into the government of Ukraine. And for those of you who have forgotten this, the OUN is the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, B is the Banderite faction after Stefan Bandera. This uh, is the really notorious one. There were actually a couple of OU uh, factions. The other main one was OUM, but the OUNB is the really, really notorious one. And they were the ones who really had uh, the run of the White House, so to speak, in Ukraine after Yashenko came to power. And on that note, uh, my guest again is uh, the avid podcast listener based out of the uk and also an amazing researcher my buddy senate uh we have got a fantastic presentation i also want to emphasize again that these shows are dedicated to the memory of ed kaufman alias don diligent he was the heart and soul of the original wackle series he was a researcher with few peers and he was an amazing man which is the most important thing. And I sincerely hope that these shows are doing Ed justice. So on that note, let us start the show. Also during Yushchenko's administration that expat Ukrainians, uh, many descendants of OUN members like Grossi, became staples in his government. This process was probably rooted in developments during the early knots that witnessed increasing collaboration between the victims of Communism Memorial Foundation and the Ukrainian Congressional Committee of America on the one hand and the Atlantic Council on the other. 
the Banderite faction of the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, came to dominate the Ukrainian Congressional Committee of America, or UCCA, for years. So it's not surprising that they would enjoy close links to the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, or VOC. In a lot of ways, the VOC was the proper successor to the World Anti-Communist League. It also enjoyed long-standing support from the Heritage Foundation, which along with the Council of National Policy are the two leading conservative think tanks in the U.S. circa 2023. <clears throat> so what is surprising is the presence of the Atlantic Council in all of this. Circa 2023, the Atlantic Council is arguably the world's premier neoliberal think tank. It's only real rival being the old Davos crowd. The Atlantic Council and the World Economic Forum have long surpassed old bugaboos like the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission years ago as the voice of the neoliberal order, the uh, Anglo-American establishment, whatever you really want to call it, um, along with uh, the New America Foundation, which is an important one here domestically. I'm sure there are UK counterparts to these groups that I'm not aware of, but yeah, these are really where uh, when people ran about the far left or whatever, what they're actually referring to, and not a group like the Trilateral Commission, which really hasn't had a lot of mojo now for about 20 or 30 years. But anyway, so how did the Atlantic Council end up in bed with uh, the old Wackle crew after so much opposition during the Cold War? A lot of that credit probably belongs to Paula Dobriansky, Lev Dobriansky's daughter. She's a big figure in the UCCA and the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations and the World Anti-Communist League and on and on throughout the Cold War. He was really the major Ukrainian figure in national security circles during this whole time. So his daughter is on the Atlantic Council's board of directors and is also a trustee of the Trilateral Commission, which the VOC co-founders of Big New Brzezinski helped set up. So Brzezinski was never deeply involved in the VOC. But his links nonetheless seem to have opened doors to groups like the Atlantic Council. By the early knots, it paved the way for the UCCA to be brought into this whole milieu. <clears throat> and this coincided with the above-mentioned Peter Ackerman joining the Atlantic Council and the UCCA receiving funding from the National Endowment for Democracy. Going into the early knots... Leading up to the Orange Revolution, there appears to have been increasing collaboration between the Atlantic Council, the VOC, UCCA, and the National Endowment for Democracy, which really, I think, set the stage for the color revolution. And just one final note I want to make here about all of this. I just find this whole topic of the soft coup, the velvet coup, the color revolution, whatever you want to call it to be, so repugnant on so many levels, partly due to its framing and then partly due to what it represents. Um, so as to the framing, as I hope this is illustrated, as much of this uh, 
style of um, coup, it's is closely connected ultimately to the Republican Party as the Democrats. A lot of this stuff really gained traction in 1983 under the Reagan years. It was first rolled out initially during the Bush one years. In fairness, the first really successful one happened during Clinton, but it was during Bush two that a lot of the major color revolutions like the rose and the orange one unfolded and there were a lot of additional ones the democrats really didn't start becoming too involved in this stuff until obama became the president but it's important to emphasize here the democrats or the neoliberal order whatever you want to call it does not have a monopoly on a color revolution it again came as much out of the right and frankly if you want to get down to it it's another variation counterinsurgency psychological warfare okay this is something that in the west we had really been attempting if you want to go back all the way almost to Prague uprising in 1956 and this is also something that the soviets took very seriously again the book that we used as a major source for a lot of the stuff on far west is a work called the third barbarossa It came out of this notion of the second Barbarossa, which the Russians effectively saw as our Cold War strategy to defeat the Soviet Union, which would use a combination of nuclear blackmail ship and psychological warfare to underman the Soviet Empire, which in a lot of ways is effectively what happened. And this was very much our strategy. In fact, I just finished up the first draft and hopefully soon publish a book that goes very extensively into how psychological warfare was a major component of our nuclear strategy and how a lot of very uh, eccentric types of psi war was employed for this stuff. Okay. So both the Russians and we here in the United States have been looking at these kinds of possibilities for years now. And with the advent of social media, with the rise of cellular phones, all this other stuff, the internet, I mean, it became so much more viable than it had been in the Cold War. That was really the other game changer, and frankly, why this stuff has become so prolific in the 21st century. That is to say, color revolutions, because on the one hand, you have social media, the internet, you have all this tech to support it, which can create flash mobs and all this other stuff. But also it's generating tons of data that can be harvested from predictive modeling, predictive profiling, all this other stuff, which also makes it easier to manipulate these crowds. So in this sense, it really shouldn't surprise anyone that this has become one of the preeminent forms of what we in the States, you know, essentially believe as is unconventional warfare. In this case, it's the psychological warfare component of that soft velvet coup whatever you want to call it so this is a important important tool in the toolbox and it doesn't have you know any kind of restrictions on the left or right hand side of the power establishments it's been used by both parties so it's not just something that only obama and george soros understand and it's also again i think important to point out too as we've been going over all this but 
Vladimir Filin, the big guy in Far West, was probably a business partner of George Soros a few years after all this played out around 2008, Venezuela again, to ethanol. So, you know, again, Soros is part of this whole crowd and what they're attempting with this. Okay. It's something that's, again, in the perceptions that are put out against about a guy like George Soros, about notion of the color revolutions of gene sharp it's not at all what a lot of commentators want you to believe that it is okay so that's one point the next thing i want to state about this is just the profoundly devastating impact that these color revolutions have had on society at large because it has weaponized democracy literally we are using this as a form of regime change and frequently to bring on authoritarian governments and again we we go around you know bemoan the fact that there's a rise of authoritarian governments across the world well yeah 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 and this is really the great tragedy of this because of how these tactics use democracy to subvert countries to u.s interests it has created a climate where practically the only way a country can continue to subsist outside the sphere of u.s coercion is to enact some kind of authoritarian government Iran is not under U.S. imperialism, nor is Russia, nor is China, and nor do any of those countries have governments that I would want to live under. And that's a sad freaking commentary that we have to live in a world where this is effectively the only way a major power can exist outside of the Anglo-American sphere of influence and coercion and power and it is a big reason why democracy has become discredited going into the 21st century because people in the developing world they don't have the same blinders on they can see how we are subverting elections to put our own stooges in power that will exploit their country for our interests and then we turn around and bemoan about this dictator or that dictator or something. I mean, it's it, it's ridiculous. And and sadly, it's the minds of a lot of people giving off the impression that democracy is every bit as bad as any other type of government. So this is a great tragedy that these methods have brought about in the 21st century and it's really a looming crisis i just want to emphasize i know this is a bit off topic here but it's something that we i don't think have really contemplated nearly enough about the implications of all these color revolutions and things of this nature and what they no, um no go ahead sir. yeah Stephen. No, I just wanted to jump in that because like uh you say something interesting like yeah that's it's a lot a lot to bring up i mean one one thing that 
you know, kind of jumped out to me when I was reading this, especially reading about Pora, Otpor, uh, Kamara, so the kind of like youth movements um, and those kind of things was um, there felt like there was something really uh, like vapid and vacuous about them because like it, it in a way they they kind of they kind of were in a sense so i i heard like this uh, you know a couple months ago that it was just like an observation by someone who was talking about jan 6 that that were like which is you know another event kind of in the in the lineage of of this kind of stuff in 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 a certain way um that you know the the people of like you know jan 6 didn't really have like any real demands other than uh you know the election is corrupt you know uh we want trump back and stuff like that and that's kind of what i feel like a lot of times when uh, which is in particular with kind of color revolutions this focus on uh very like abstract um concepts like corruption and those kinds of things it's like like you know corruption happens in a lot of places and like people are discontented in a lot of countries but this kind of uh magic of hey but the solution to fix it is just to become western orientated uh follow the washington consensus so you know just uh cut your spending and just magically money's gonna come um and i i think you know you you see that in a lot of these cases where the 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 movements or the groups didn't have much long-term success or afterwards the kind of you know momentum of the revolution you know falls because like i i guess like people that involved and hyped up you know are like forced to confront like reality of like hey we did everything the americans asked us to do and we have we haven't got any money um so it it, it yeah i think it really is damaging not even just like on the geopolitical side of things but just I can only imagine it must be damaging to like psychologically to some of the people involved to kind of get like worked up and think you're, you know, part of a revolution only to find like a year or two later, you know, like your your life is exactly the same or, you know, in subtle ways worse. Well, another thing, too, I'm glad you actually brought that up because it reminded me of another point I wanted to make. Um, and, you know, this is something that they get into and in how to start a revolution, which, again, it's even though it's a propaganda film, there is a lot of compelling stuff that comes out in it. So if you're interested in this topic, I urge you guys to watch it. But one of the things that they emphasize, because you correctly pointed out that a lot of these movements outside of Edper, you know, really petered out and didn't really amount to much, but the sense you almost get at times when you're watching how to start a revolution is that was i mean almost really the point they didn't intend for any of these people who are often just sort of you know idealistic college kids to take power what they were really looking for effectively were martyrs 
you know, because you're sending these kids out to try to, you know, confront these authoritarian regimes and do their, you know, their street theater or what have you against, you know, heavily armed police or military or what have you. And in a lot of cases, there was the sense that it was a, you know, win-win scenario for U.S. interests, because if they were able to stir up enough commotion to topple the government, well, that would be great. But conversely, if the government went out and shot them all, that was great, too. Because now we've got all these dead college kids we can point to and be like, oh, look at, the, you know, look at this. They're barbarians, right? So the creation of martyrs is just crucial to this, uh, to the techniques that were adapted from Gene Sharp. And I should probably point out, in fairness, I, I almost get the sense that he was rather horrified by the mid-knots and what uh, was being done with many of his techniques. I know Peter Ackerman actually cut off his funding to Sharp around this time frame. Ackerman actually kind of seems like, even though a lot of the, the stuff that he's working with with Gene Sharp's techniques, Ackerman was really the guy who weaponized a lot of this stuff. And again, you know, I need to emphasize this stuff all really goes back to 1983. This is something I'm going to get into in my book, but this is really around the time when the Reagan administration was steeping up its efforts in what is amusingly <laughs> referred to as low-intensity conflicts. It was pretty much all the times of unconventional or covert warfare. It was counterinsurgency, unconventional warfare, psychological warfare, all this other kind of stuff. So we were massively building up our capabilities at this time frame. They were meeting with people like psychological warfare master Edward Lansdale and the National Endowment of Democracy very much seems to have been something that came out of these efforts. Stuff is, again, you know, a whole component of low intensity conflict is what it should be viewed as all right and i will also say senate you are absolutely spot on on jan 6 because that has all of the characteristics of a color revolution but of course it couldn't be a coup because there were no weapons on it and they couldn't have possibly had an intention of just you know creating martyrs and george soros has never ran a coup in his entire life either by the same definition so Sorzos definitely never did uh, anyway oh to get back here on point uh once Yershenko came to power it was this whole network here to get back to these guys the Atlantic Council the VOC the Ukrainian Congressional Committee of America and of course our buddies the National Endowment of Democracy it was this network that began consolidating power in Ukraine. So, Zenit, what can you tell us about President Yushchenko's wife? Um, okay, it, it turns out she's a really, really well-connected figure. So, last time, uh, or I think in one of the previous episodes, we did a kind of deep dive into uh Fritz Ermhart uh and we kind of mentioned here you know how he was connected into this uh milieu of people um but we mentioned then a particular wackle conference 
So the Wacko Conference of 1984. And just to remind you, I mean, this is a really star star-studded list here. So the attendees of that conference for which there is a poster, if you if you look around, is Slava Stetsko, Roman Zavich. You uh this this is the same guy you were talking about, Stephen, but I think we've got his surname uh translated differently. Roman Z- uh Zarkic. Uh that's this is how it's spelled on English in, in Wikipedia, who also, right now, um, so this is the general that we've uh, mentioned through, who was an American. He was the apparently the first American in 1991 to give up his American citizenship and become a Ukrainian. Um, him, oh, Percy, Percy, Percy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's translated as a Z um, for me. But uh, though I think it is the same person because there there could only be the you know one of, <laughs> with that background. Uh, and an interesting thing to note about him as well was he was the um, he is the leader of the uh, Azov Civic Corps, which is kind of the political wing of the Azov Battalion. Um, uh, other attendees at this uh, Wackle conference, so Slava Setsko, uh, Roman Sarkic. Um, Zorich, um, John Singulab, um, Theodore Oberlander, who was the kind of um, German officer in charge of uh, many of the Ukrainian SS units, so in particular the Ukrainian Noctegal Battalion. Uh, he's a major figure in the, um, you know, was the uh, German Eastern Studies or Osfoschung. So a um, really important figure in Ukraine, World War II. Um, we went into him in one of the previous episodes. Um, also, uh, General Daniel Graham, who was representing ultra-right elements in US intelligence. Uh, so he had served as the head of the CIA and DIA. Um, he'd been a member of the American Freedom Coalition and chairman of the U.S. Council for World Freedom. I th- I think that is Wackle, or that was yeah, that's the... Yeah, the, that's the American branch of Wackle, and I think Graham was only actually just a deputy director of the CIA. I don't think he actually headed it. He did head the DIA, though. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, he was on the advisory board of the uh, CAUSA... Uh, something connected to the Moonies uh, and any communists. Oh, so just, uh, just yeah, 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 yeah. Causa, and then uh, also in attendance, as just mentioned, John Singulab of Western Goals. Uh, Waggle, I'm, I'm sure a lot has been mentioned of him, and uh, also I think he's a chairman or director of Victims of Communism as well. So they were all at this meeting, but so was. Um, uh Katerina Yushchenko at that time called uh Katerina Chumashenko so she were you know president Yushchenko's future wife was born in Chicago um she was a member of Ukrainian nationalist youth organizations um and very familiar of the with the social nationalist ideology of the OUMB um apparently the nationalists were 
very connected with her kind of future rise um that's been shown uh that we'll get into in a sec um the national review in 2022 did a nice article on her um where she uh gave some interesting details so her father uh this is just a bit about her family history and uh we get in some lineage here so her father uh Mikhailo Chumachenko was born in 1917 uh his father who's Katerina's grandfather was arrested for quote anti-soviet agitation and propaganda in 1928 um the ON were active during the 20s as well um in west ukraine and poland um, he had objected to the confiscation of Ukraine of Ukrainian lands, and in 1934 he was hanged. Her father was a survivor of the Holodomor. Um, his two sisters uh, did not survive. Their names were Katerina and Klava. Um, Miss Yushchenko is named for both of them. So Klava is her middle name. Um, her mother, um, her mother's father, so her maternal grandfather, fought in the Ukrainian War of Independence, which took place um, from 1917 to 1921. Um, just some more info here. Uh, though in many respects an all-American girl, I grew up, quote, I grew up as Ukrainian, she says. Her parents always stressed to her that she had a responsibility to remember the language, to remember the religion, to remember history. She took lessons in Ukrainian dance. She took lessons on the bandura, the Ukrainian national instrument, which is um, one of those very big uh, guitars. It's like a really big lute with many strings. Um, you, If you've seen like uh, rural Ukraine or classical Ukrainian pictures, uh, you'll see, you'll see. You'll see it in there if you don't know what it looks like. Um, when dissidents from Ukraine started being released from the Gulag and coming to America, the family attended every speech and every event they could. Uh, Katerina went to Georgetown University, um, the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She planned to be a diplomat sent to the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe. However, she was told that she would have little chance of that because of all of her relatives in Ukraine. She could potentially be subject to blackmail. So instead, she switched to international economics, eventually earning an MBA from the University of Chicago. Uh, while she was in her early 20s, she headed the Ukrainian National Information Service um, in Washington, which is a sub-branch of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, the UCCA. Okay, now here's, here's where some interesting connections come up to her. So here's a quote from her. The Reagan years were a very special time for us, she says because there was such an emphasis on freedom and democracy around the world. So at this time, she was working for the U.S. State Department, um, specifically Richard Shifter, 
the Assistant Secretary for Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs. Um, now, he is a really interesting character in himself, and this was qu quite an interesting uh, connection to find. Uh, I don't think either of us um, had really expected this, but it's um, quite relevant here. So Richard Shifter was born in Vienna in 1923. He was able to leave Austria at 15 after the Anschluss. Um, his parents uh, were able to obtain just one visa and they gave it to him, their only child. Um, they later passed away in the, well, were murdered in the Holocaust. Um, so Shifter himself, joined the army in 1943 becoming uh, a member of the Ritchie boys which was a unit of among others young Jewish German refugees in the US who had been trained in psychological warfare he was present for the Normandy landings and did intelligence work in the field after the battle battle of the bulge he was stationed in Aachen and tasked with interviewing the civilian population and he produced one of the first studies of daily life under the third reich um he searched for his family after the war um but they had all been killed um he was discharged from the army in 1946 but stayed in allied occupied germany working for the u.s military government as a civilian until 1948 so now a bit more about the Ritchie boys um they consisted of approximately 20,000 servicemen and 200 women's army corps members who were trained for U.S. Army intelligence during World War II at the secret camp uh, Camp Ritchie training facility which I think was in Maryland over 14 percent so 2,800 of them were Jewish refugees born in Germany and Austria uh, most of the men sent to Camp Ritchie for training were assigned there because of their fluency in German French Italian Polish or other languages needed by the U.S. Army they were specifically trained in methods of intelligence, counterintelligence, interrogation, investigation, and psychological warfare. Um, 900 of these men also attended a special training at Camp Sharp, Pennsylvania. The Jewish refugees were qualified for these tasks because they knew German and understood the German mentality and behavior better than most American-born soldiers. The role of these soldiers was therefore to work in the front lines at strategic corps and army levels, uh, conducting interrogations, analysing German forces and plans, and also to study and demoralise the enemy. The majority of them went on to work as members of the US counterintelligence corps. Um, there were also a few very famous names in that. I'll, I'll mention a few, and I think... Stephen might mention a few others or just after this. So um, David Rockefeller, but also uh, one I picked out was Archibald Bullock Roosevelt Jr., who was also a who went on to be a CIA officer, um, particularly in the Middle East. Um, 
He's the cousin of Kermit Roosevelt, uh, who was responsible for, I think, Operation Ajax in Iran. So I think that's the overthrow of Mossadegh. Uh, Archibald um, tried similar operations in Arab Iraq and Syria, and these were both failures. But um, I thought it was interesting here that uh, there's this lineage of revolution, psychological operations that comes out of the Ritchie voice and this connection to, you know, kind of what Richard Shifter, you know, what the Ritchie boys were doing and Richard Shifter then to what we've been discussing here, which is like color revolutions say you you know the the role of human rights uh and human rights discourse in all of this uh i thought was very interesting um just another tidbit for these guys so a classified post-war report by the u.s army found that nearly 60 percent of the credible intelligence gathered in europe came from the richie boys and after the war, many of them served uh, during the Nuremberg trials and then went on to have successful political, scientific or business careers, which um, I thought was also quite interesting because that's um, very much a mould of, uh, I think, a lot of other groups and factions that were involved in intelligence at that time. So particularly this that's pretty much what happened to everyone that was in the OSS uh, as well. Well, that didn't stay on the job. Stephen, did you have anything uh, to add in, in any of that? Yeah, just a few things. But the uh, Ritchie boys are a really uh, interesting unit that's not talked about a lot. They It was theoretically called the Military Intelligence Service. Uh, and uh, there were definitely a couple of other interesting guys in here that I wanted to briefly highlight. But <clears throat> another one who's really interesting in light of some of the stuff we've talked about was uh, Alfred de Grazia, I believe, <clears throat> G-R-A-Z-I-A. But this was a guy who went on to become a big figure in simulatics which was sort of the Cambridge Analytica of the 1960s. It was actually the first um, uh, company to use uh, computers uh, combined with uh, predictive modeling and profiling to help with an election, and they were actually hired uh, by JFK's campaign. There's been an ongoing debate as to how much this actually contributed to his success or not, but <clears throat> Simumax is a really interesting topic, and later both the company directly and a lot of people affiliated with it ended up doing a lot of work for the uh, military on some very interesting projects like Cambridge and Camelot and ComCom, and especially a lot related to Vietnam. Alfred de Grazia actually was in Vietnam doing projects uh, for Simulmatics at one point which is really interesting. He came into uh, contact with a lot of other various, very curious figures during this whole time frame. I mean, it was all essentially related to psychological warfare, but also data harvesting at some of the strategic hamlets and uh, that kind of thing that we were running in Vietnam. Again, this is another topic that I'm going to get into uh, in my forthcoming book, but it's a very fascinating one here. 
another interesting name involved in this was uh, J.D. Salinger, the novelist who <clears throat> famously wrote Catcher in the Rye, which uh, is a very popular text amongst many would-be assassins uh, in the course of this here nation's history. And there were some other interesting ones here, too. Robert Comer was another name. He uh, was also a figure active in Vietnam, and specifically, he had overseen Cords. What was it? The Civilian Office of uh, Reconstructive Settlement or some ridiculous thing like that. But that was effectively the body in which the Phoenix program was housed in in Vietnam. And again, I should emphasize a lot of the stuff that Gereza and, you know, his other work there was involved with all of that. It was all part of pacification programs that were being launched in Vietnam. Essentially, it was a laboratory for a lot of this kind of stuff. Comer was <clears throat> at the top of the pecking order and managing it. All right. Uh, another guy was Fritz Kramer, big nuclear strategist who uh, some people believe was one of the partial inspirations for the character of Dr. Strangelove, and that wouldn't necessarily be too far off the mark, but him along with Herman Kahn. So he was another interesting one. But uh, before we move on here, I just I needed to point out just something really weird, though. So one of the guys who was a member of this unit was an individual called Hans Habe, I believe, H-A-B-E. And this guy, uh, I had originally heard about him in the first book in Peter Lavenda's Sinister Forces trilogy, but he's a really interesting figure, like a lot of these guys. Uh, psycholo expertise in psychological warfare, which is mainly what the Ritchie boys did during the Second World War. Uh, afterwards, he had also been a novelist, and when he... Uh, relocated uh, to the U.S. after the war. He ended up in L.A. There were a couple of <clears throat> movies that were made based on his works. Uh, but what gets really interesting about this is that his daughter, uh, Marina Elizabeth Habe, was murdered quite brutally uh, in December 1968 when she was 17. And a member of the Manson family had actually claimed that the family had known Happy and that uh, she had, her death was related to them. And uh, this is really, it gets even weirder because, um, of course, there's the really popular book on the Manson killings that came out a couple of years ago. It's called Chaos. Charles Manson, the CIA and the Secret History of the 60s uh, by Tom O'Neill. He gets into this gang of criminals uh, that have been linked into some of the figures around the scene of uh, the Polanski residence prior to the murders. One of them had been in military intelligence during the Second World War. Uh, his last name was Tecot, I believe, T-A-C-O-T. Uh, and he had still claimed to have had some curious connections. Yes, his name was Uncle Charles Tecot. He had this group of criminals, uh, Billy Doyle, Tom Harrigan, and uh, one named Dawson, Pip Dawson. And if I remember correctly, these were the folks specifically that uh, rumor has it that 
had been filmed uh, being whipped or something at the Polanski residence after they were accused of burning them on a drug deal or something like that. So anyway, supposedly they recorded to this guy, reported to this guy called Uncle Charles Ducat, who was an ex-Marine who claimed to have uh, worked in military intelligence. And Ducat, in turn, said that he would reported to, for a lot of years, a guy called Hank Fine, who, uh, to quote from O'Neill's book here, was a veteran of the Army's military intelligence service. This had been a World War II air operation so secret that it wasn't even acknowledged by the federal government until 1972 by a Polish immigrant whose true name was Hirsch Mitzias Warszawa, probably butchering that totally, I apologize, was an assassin who shot people for the government, Dukat claimed. Uh, but this would certainly be in keeping with uh, the Ritchie boys, and as I said before, the unit was technically known as uh, the military intelligence service so uh, yeah it's really interesting that uh, it would seem the two members possibly of the Ritchie boys uh later turn up in the Manson crime spree so yeah but then again I guess it was probably inevitable uh all these discussions of these strange people and Nazis and so forth that we would come upon Charles Manson. I mean, why not? It seems like everything else turns up in this. So there you go, guys. That's another really strange thing about the Ritchie boys. The fact that they seem to show up in just all kinds of bizarre places, not just in the upper echelons of power as personified by people like David Rockefeller or Alfred de Grezia. And if you really consider some of the implications about, on the one hand, the kind of establishment types working, like uh, Comer and DeGreza working on counterinsurgency programs um, during the Vietnam era and that kind of thing, and, you know, arguably David Rockefeller is another guy you could throw in there with his longstanding ties to the Americas, certainly his family was active and helping set up the sort of liaisons with the military down there but i don't want to get us too sidetracked but the point being a lot of these people knew a thing or two about counterinsurgency and curiously um yeah they uh show up in something like the manson killings which i mean obviously at least one individual david mcgowan did lank lichen as part of a domestic phoenix program so do with that as you will but anyway i probably digressed us a real bit enough here so uh, getting back to what you were saying senate okay yeah so i mean it's actually i mean good to add some of that because so following on with uh katarina yushenko um katarina was charged with compiling lists of political prisoners in the Soviet Union, which President Reagan would then present to Mikhail Gorbachev uh, every meeting they had, uh, to which uh, Gorbachev's reported to have said it was too many lists. Uh, after her stint at the State Department, uh, Katrina worked at the White House in the Office of Public Liaison, um, 
which at, at that time is described as you know basically a front for for Wackle um and and a few other right-wing groups um it was such an amazing time she says i remember telling my friends afterwards my life will never be as great as this year as the year i've just spent um in the reagan white house around this time <laughs> she'd also been a staffer at the heritage foundation and she was formerly a director of the captive nations committee um subsequently she worked at the u.s treasury in the executive secretary's office during the administration of bush senior uh, after leaving that position she was on the staff of the joint economic committee of the u.s congress um then we move to 1991 where after ukraine declared its freedom she was a she became a co-founder and vice president of the ukraine us foundation uh which aim which their aims were to support democratic and free market development in a newly independent ukraine she also heads the ukraine 3000 foundation which emphasizes promoting yeah, here we go promoting civil society particularly charity and corporate responsibility. Uh, the foundation implements programs in the areas of children's health, integrating the disabled, um, improving education, supporting culture and arts, publishing books, researching history, in particularly the uh, Holodomor. Uh, in 1993, she joined KPMG, um Berent's group as a consultant in its bank training uh, and manager program where she met where she met Viktor Yushchenko um and they married in 1998 so just to remind us of Yushchenko um Viktor Yushchenko uh began his career in banking uh in 1983 he became the deputy director for the agricultural credit at the Ukrainian Republican office of the Soviet Union State Bank. Um, he also then worked as vice chairman of the JSC Agro Industrial Bank Ukraine. In 1993, he was appointed governor of the National Bank of Ukraine. So I think that's the position of top central banker in Ukraine. A key event that occurred around this time was the murder of uh, Vadim uh, Hetman, or sometimes Getman, um, who was the former head of the National Bank of Ukraine and was described as a fatherly mentor to Yushchenko. Uh, his murder in Kiev, in April of 1998 was never solved but according to well-informed sources in the uh, CIS so Commonwealth of Independent States so probably Russia um, Getman was eliminated by the Gore 
and his hit was organized by a man by the name of Sergei Petrov, who's a military intelligence officer uh, and Filin's old partner, plus his a deputy in Far West. Far West was also founded in 1998, and the relationship with Halliburton was established in 1998 as well. It's important to note here that Getman was assassinated soon after Yushchenko had married uh, Chumashenko, so Victor married Katerina. Um, as a result, uh, a man we discussed earlier, Roman uh, Zarkowitz, who was formerly American, formerly an American military general, uh, replaced Getman as Yushchenko's closest advisor. And then several months after this, Al Gore, Al Gore told Kuchma that the United States wanted to see um, Yushchenko as his successor. Um, so that was a, yeah, one one of the murders um, that Far West is and Katerina Yushchenko is kind of implicated in, allegedly, because uh, she's still alive and could sue. <laughs> um, uh, the a second one which I found which was quite important um, which I couldn't find a huge amount of information on in English I'm sure had I started getting into Ukrainian um, sources I might have but um, I think it really sets the scene of just some of the things that were going on there um, again like this is the sort of story that had, had I read this at the time I would have just had no idea of how to, um, you know, fit this into things. But now you, especially given the war in Ukraine, you start to understand. So a little background to this is in the research we did, like Donetsk uh, during, during the 90s in Ukraine, you see a very similar story to Russia with a lot of... Uh, lawlessness essentially battles between uh gangs mobs mafias oligarchs uh and Don donetsk uh donetsk um uh and just donbass in general so the east of ukraine was um a really uh, you know uh, a hot spot for a lot of this stuff so this uh just comes from an article on um from the Irish Times uh about the death of a of a of a criminal boss um by the name of Ak Akat Bragin who was known as Alec the Greek so the excerpt goes um Bragin died in a bomb attack on Sunday the 15th of October 1995 at the Shakhtar Stadium in Donetsk. After this event, Rina Akhmetov uh, became president and chairman of Shakhtar Donetsk. The reason that for Akhmetov's murder was his business dealings. Known in the criminal underworld as Alec the Greek, his organization got into conflicts with several others the investigation into his death made little progress until the confession of a rival gangster, which led to the arrest and imprisonment of a former policeman, 
Vyacheslav Sinenko. And yeah, that was the excerpt from the article. And the names of Sergei Petrov, Filin, and Litvinsev, who were the Ukrainian members of Far West, um, were linked to this murder. Apparently, the murder was arranged in order to allow um, Rina Akhmatov to take power. And this was something that facilitated the political rise of Viktor Yanukovych, who has been presented as pro-Russian, and perhaps in the end, he ended up being so. But um, during a lot of this time, he was working with all of the forces that were um, going in, you know, a lot of the, a lot of, all of the forces that were kind of at play in uh, Ukraine. And in a lot of the stuff we read, it's quite interesting because they don't necessarily present him as pro-Russian. That was the kind of summary of all of that. That was nicely done, sir. Well, keep in mind, folks, a lot of other major geopolitical events were unfolding during this whole time frame that we've been discussing here. And as we had noted even earlier in part six of this series, the Wanga coup unfolded in 2004. You had the Madrid bombings and the election there that brought the anti-U.S. part that brought an anti-U.S. party to power, political party. And finally, you had the U.S. presidential election. You also had a lot of deaths linked to the nukes far west smuggled out of Ukraine during this time. So there were many factors in play in this crucial period between 2000 and, 2000 and 2004. A lot of these events are still shaping contemporary happenings. But post-04, things appear to have simmered down for at least a few years after the Orange Revolution. But big plans were afoot by 08. So, Senate, what links did Far West have to John McCain, his 08 bid for the presidency, and the Russo Georgian conflict in 2008? Okay, so there are basically two kind of major connections we found between. Um, kind of the headquarters of, um, you know, McCain's campaign. So I think Cheney was, Dick Cheney was heavily involved um, in general, Um, but also we have two figures, yeah, that are singled out. So these are Randy Schumann and uh, Schumann and Robert Kagan. So Schunemann was McCain's senior foreign policy advisor, and he was the owner of a lobbying firm that had been hired by um, Georgian President Saakashvili uh, to lobby for NATO membership. So just a bit more background on Schunemann. Uh He was the founder for the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq uh, in 2002. Uh, and one of the main lobbyists for the invasion. Um, he was uh, allegedly a participant in the false falsification of intelligence on Iraq and in and in the organization of the puppet government there. He was closely associated with Ahmed Chalabi um, of 
Iraq war fabrication fame. And uh, we believe that with Fritz Ermhardt, who was at the time, um, who was at the time attached by Robert Gates um, to the Science Applications International Corporation, which was the largest contractor for the Pentagon and the, the FBI and the CIA. And Gates was on the board of directors there. Um, Robert Kagan was is also a major figure in, uh, I guess, what they call neo neoconservatism uh, for the product uh, project for a new American century. Um, so he he's about a lot in this milieu. I think the more important thing he's known for now nowadays is being the husband of Victoria Newland. So Kagan and uh, Schunemann hatch from Wolseley and Wolfowitz, yeah, neoliberal project, project for a new American century. Um, Fritz Ermhoff um, re retains a close ca uh, relationship with James Wolseley. Um, in mid-March 2008, Robert Kagan allegedly had his first meeting with the leadership of Far West LLC. Um, so this would be Vladimir Filin, Ruslan Sidov, and Anton Surikov. Uh, they were introduced to Kagan in Brussels by the former, by Fritz Umhoff. Um This meeting established a channel of communication between Far West and then the foreign policy and secret service elements behind McCain's campaign. In May, after this meeting, Fillin began publicly um, blackmail publicly blackmailing Russia with the threat of nuclear weapons, hinting that Ukraine's military had concealed nuclear weapons in violation of the Budapest Agreement of 1995. He also continued to demonize German Social Democrats by comparing Chancellor Schroeder and Foreign Minister Steinmeier to Nazis and the Russian-German pipeline project Nord Stream to the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact. pact. <laughs> um, and, well, look look where we are now. It's expected that Finland's statements were sanctioned by Dick Cheney. Um, a lot of these statements as well, because uh, you might think, well, where, where was he saying this? Uh, in, in a lot of the documentation, they're from various, basically journal posts and like um articles and stuff that fill in himself uh released under you know the that, that name as a, under the cover of like a political scientist so it's kind of like articles that are like code um i i didn't really you know conceive of that kind of concept of people writing like that before but it's quite interesting that now that this Russia war is going on and having, uh, you know, heard about it or, or, you know, seen some of this stuff in reality, you can kind of see it going on sometimes where, um, you know, like high level discussions are being had in public or um, the article doesn't make sense or you, or you think wouldn't make sense to a normal person unless you know about certain things. Uh, so it's quite so it's quite interesting. 
but yeah, um, nuclear blackmail. So, Finland's statements were sanctioned by Dick Cheney uh, and suggested to him, most likely, by Kagan or Schumann. This is evident from what happened next. In May um, of 2008, Bush goes to Berlin and tells Merkel that the Ukrainians are determined to have the bomb if the Germans did not approve their membership into, into NATO. After meeting with Bush, Merkel goes to Kiev, where the Gur have prepared, have prepared for Yushchenko and the National Security Council a draft of the declaration about Ukraine exiting the Budapest Treaty and no longer being bound to remain a non-nuclear weapon state. In Kiev, Merkel reportedly sovereigns up to the NATO issue, but convinces Yushchenko to wait with a with the declaration. Um, some time so simultaneous to this, based on sources from the Ukraine Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, uh, in the fall of two thousand and two, uh, two thousand and seven, General Vladimir Filin was reassigned from the Special Department R to coordinate the activities of Ukrainian and Georgian military intelligence. In practice, this meant that Filling controlled the flow of Ukrainian intelligence about Russian military to Georgia. Georgian intelligence services were not adequate for this task and had to rely on, on the Ukrainians themselves. Uh, Filling had experienced intelligence cadres, many of whom worked for the Soviet group, and a strong operational network in southern Russia and, and in Moscow. So, according to the American plans of the Cheney and McCain group, Georgia was supposed to attack Russia and then allow Russian troops into South Ossetia through the Rocky, tu Rocky Tunnel and tie them up for... 10 to 15 days at this time a rebellion was being prepared in in Gushetia and in the uh, which is in Chechnya or Dagestan I think and in the region in August the 20th to 25th armed provocations in Crimea a rebellion in Turkmenistan and a major terrorist attack in so in Sochi but since the Georgians fled on the third day, the security services, um, the Gur and the SBU backed up. Moreover, they did it in spite of Yushchenko. Then came political chaos, the global financial crisis, and Obama came forward, and the pro provocations were postponed for the future. All right, so as we go into the home stretch, then the provocations in Georgia didn't work and McCain lost the election. Barwa soon found a new US VIP to back them in their ongoing efforts to destabilize Russia, however. That would be then US Vice President elect Joe Biden. So when do we know that far that the Far West Network first started making overtures to Uncle Joe Senate? And how did this come about? Um, so in the information we've got, we can see that, well, it's alleged that basically Far West, so that would be 
Filin, Sidov, and Surikov actually came to Washington, D.C. and met with Joe Biden um, in 2008. Also at this meeting was uh, Brzezinski and Robert Gates. Um, Obama himself apparently did not attend the meeting. Um, I think what's interesting is the um, kind of Georgian conflict was kind of at least theorized that it was designed to influence the American election and to push McCain forward. Um, But as he basically fell back further and further in the polls, um, I think a lot more of a push came to came to select Biden um, from Obama. So basically, I've got here from another New York Times article around 2008 on August the 24th. Um, and it says here, Mr. Obama announced his selection when the conflict between Russia and Georgia had provided Republicans an opportunity to re-inject foreign policy into an election that had increasingly become focused on the economy. Um, Mr. McCain, uh, as the presumed Republican nominee, has been proving himself a scrappier opponent than many Democrats would have assumed him to be. Mr. Obama woke up to a reminder of his opponent's aggressiveness. The McCain campaign re- released a television ad- advertisement on Sunday, on Saturday morning, even before the rally began, using Mr. Biden's own words, discrediting Mr. Obama during their primary battles, showing Mr. Biden that, saying that Mr. Obama is not ready to be president. However, um, immediately after the conflict in Georgia, uh, Obama Obama selected Biden to be his vice president. Apparently, just before this, Biden had flown out to Georgia as part of his post as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. He repeatedly met with Saakashvili, and it yeah, it was around this time that basically Biden uh, Obama announced him. As the guy. That's quite a good note to end things on here in this installment. So we're up to about 2008. Uh, we've got another roughly uh, 15 or so years here to cover to bring things up to current date. But so far, I hope you guys are starting to see how this uh, bizarre cast of characters is still very much influencing events to this day. And especially a lot of just the catastrophic repercussions from all of this. Well, on that note, I think we will sign off for now. I want to thank Senate again so much for being here and uh, joining me for this series. And also Ed Berger for all the great work he has done. And a big shout out again to all the original Wackle crew and especially to Ed Kaufman, alias Don Diligent. Uh, hopefully he is looking over this series and blessing it as we go along. And with that, I will say to you guys, as always, good night and good luck to you all.
Darling, quit now the night. 